Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, We're going to jump back in our series, uh, His Story, Lessons from the Old Testament. And as you know, if you've been around, we kind of started out with Adam and Eve and uh, have continued right up now. We're in the life of Abraham. And I've entitled our message, Righteous. Max Lucado tells the story of being dropped by his insurance company because he had one too many speeding tickets and a minor fender bender that wasn't his fault. How many times have we said that one? Yeah, it wasn't my fault. One day he received a letter in the mail. I have a feeling the brush robbers got this letter at 1.2 when, uh, when we had four teenagers and six drivers. So he got a letter in the mail informing him to seek coverage elsewhere. As he reflected on how he wasn't good enough for his insurance company, the spiritual tie-in was too obvious. Many people fear receiving such a letter from God, he writes. Some worry they already have. And then he then imagines this correspondence straight from the Pearly Gates underwriting division. Dear Mrs. Smith, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you you've reached a quota of sins. Our records show that since employing our services, you have erred seven times in the area of greed. Your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20 percentile, and you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are a high-risk candidate for heaven. You understand that grace has its limits. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage. This is how it goes for someone who constantly lives in fear of not knowing enough, not doing enough, and not ever measuring up before God. That is the great fear for all of us. Maybe we're not good enough. Maybe we don't quite measure up. Maybe we need to be perfect. You say, perfect? No. Actually, you know what? There's a Bible verse that says, if you're going to base your salvation on being good enough, you actually do need to be perfect. It's right in the Bible. James 2.10, it's a New Testament text. The brother of Jesus writes it. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law, and by that it would mean, you know, all the Ten Commandments, all the other surrounding uh, documents, and there's hundreds of commands. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, or guilty of all of it, some translations say. You say, how is that fair that we break one command and yet God acts as though we're guilty of breaking every one of them. And the point is not that you have broken all of them, the point is you break one and you are now what? You're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. I was a lawbreaker early on in life. I was a biter. I had a daughter who was a biter in the church nursery. I passed that on. And I hate to say it, she might have passed it on as well. Hope she's not watching this. You break one law and you're a lawbreaker. That's a problem because we need that dealt with. We need that undone because a holy God demands perfection and none of us are capable of it. 
But our natural response when it comes to this issue is to sort of work it off, to work off our sinfulness. We're going to try, this is the human response, this is actually sort of the religious response. In fact, most religion is based on this ideal. We're going to try to work it off. We're going to do more good than bad. We're going to try to keep God's top ten. We're going to try to be good husbands and wives, good sons and daughters, good neighbors, good citizens, keep the golden rule. Hopefully the scales of justice are tipped in our favor at the end of the day. It's a lie. We can't do it. I love this illustration. Johnny Miller writes, when I was a teenager, I became fascinated and appalled and grieved by the literature of the Holocaust. One scene that haunts me is a picture from Auschwitz. I've actually shown this before. Uh, You can look this up on Google. You see it right on the gates of Auschwitz. Above the entryway to the concentration camp were the words, Arbeit macht free. The same thing stood above the camp at Dachau. It means work makes free. Work will liberate you and give you freedom. So literally, the Nazis, when people got off the trains and they're going into these camps, were telling Jews and others that if you work hard, that's your path to freedom. Knowing all along, they would kill them. It was a lie. It was a false hope. They made the people believe hard work would equal liberation. But the promised liberation was horrifying suffering and even death. Our bike mock free. One reason that phrase haunts me is because it is the spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It is a false hope, an impossible dream for many people in the world. They believe their good works will be great enough to outweigh their bad works, allowing them to stand before God in eternity, say, you owe me the right to enter into heaven because I'm a good person. I've done more good than bad. It's the hope of every false religion, he writes. Arbeit mach free. Work will liberate you. Again, the scriptures are clear. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all because we are lawbreakers. And then there's this other verse in Romans that Paul gives us when he talks about the purpose of the law. We know that whatever the law says, in other words, God's commands... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because, and here's the key, by the works of the law, by being good, by keeping God's commands, no flesh, nobody will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is saying the law was never intended to rescue us. You can try to be a law keeper all you want. You'll never be good enough. That's Paul's point. It was never intended for that. It was to help you recognize you're breaking it. When you have a sign on the side of the road, 100 kilometers, what does it do? It helps you recognize where the boundary is. The Old Testament laws were given for boundaries as to how we would live morally and ethically, but they don't make us righteous. They show us when we're unrighteous. Sin makes us sinners, makes us lawbreakers. And all the law-keeping and good deeds in the world can't undo it. We need something radical to happen to us. We need a new classification. We need a new judicial standing. We need to undo somehow the sinner-lawbreaker label and be put in a new category. And that's not new. 
we have something about that actually, shockingly, in Genesis chapter 15. We're in this series, His Story, or God's Story with Humanity. Genesis 15 is part of Abraham's faith journey, so father of Israel, father of faith. And in Genesis 15, 6, there is a theological statement, a word, a term, a phrase that is quoted by Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament on this very subject. It's what we all need from God. And it's interestingly showing that it's always been what we all need from God. No difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament on this issue. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you. You can grab that. It's going to be on page 10, right from the left, page 10. And we're going to read this chapter. And this chapter is going down a couple of paths, as you'll see, and I'll talk about that. But let's read Genesis chapter 15, beginning on page 10, verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And here's the key verse. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness, that is one of the most theologically rich statements in the Bible, and it's what Paul uses in Romans to explain what we're going to call justification by faith. We'll talk about it later. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these to God and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell on him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation. He's talking about Egypt in the future whom they will serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, you'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So what he's saying is, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt, and during that time, what's going on in the promised land will become unacceptable to God, and then they will come back. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Again, great names for boys if you happen to be pregnant. All right. So we're going to talk about the broader narrative here, and then we're going to get into this verse 6. First, verse 6 is the key theological point. 
This Abram believed God and God counted it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is a huge theological statement. The, the book of Romans is built largely on that concept, especially chapters 3 through 5. But it's not the main point that Moses, now Moses isn't alive yet, but Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When Moses put this together, he drops verse 6 in there. But the, the, the story is broader than verse 6. But we're going to focus on verse 6 in a few minutes. But there's a growing story here. God is adding information to his promises to Abraham. They've had very sporadic dialogue. God has sort of appeared to him, maybe in a vision. God has given him a, a few audible voices along the way. So Abraham, he doesn't have a Bible, remember? He is like one of the first people in the Bible. He doesn't have a Bible, so he's getting some sort of direct appearances or audible voices from God, and he's following that. There's a growing story here as it relates to that, and that's what we're going to talk about first. First point, God expanded his promise or promises to Abraham. The details are getting clearer. Now, this is the broader, I'm going to call it the meta-narrative. It's the great narrative. It's the big story, and we're going to spend a little time on that because we're going to get back to that next week, and then we're going to talk about verse 6. Abraham had just finished organizing a small militia against a regional alliance. Now, the last time I was here, we preached about that. Uh, there was this group of kings that were sort of the dominant regional power. They were from the east a little bit, and maybe the northeast, and they were demanding taxes from the cities that were next to Abraham. And the people next to Abraham stopped paying their taxes. And so this group of kings came and pillaged these cities. They kidnapped all of the people. They stole all of the plunder. And it included Abraham's relatives, Lot and his family, who were living down in those cities of the plain. So now Abraham is further west. These kings from the east have pillaged the cities between him and their territory. And they've stolen his nephew Lot and his family. Abraham hears about it. Abraham raises a small army. He had, Abraham was part of a big clan. He has no kids yet, but he's got a lot of wealth. He's got a lot of servants. There's 300 plus trained men who are part of the Abraham clan at this point. And he takes 318, I believe, people and arms them. And they chase this army of the kings of the east into the night. And they win a battle in the middle of the night and they recover all of the plunder. They bring it back. Abraham was probably thrilled. I mean, who wouldn't be? At first major battle, he does a great job. Five kings are defeated. His faith is probably growing. But he'd also just put himself on the map as a regional military leader, which I don't think he wanted to do. Abraham is not very confident living in this foreign country with all these hostile neighbors. He's kind of a no-bad, and he's a shepherd, and he's setting up tents, and they're moving their people around and so on. He's not trying to be a regional power at this point, and he has just put himself on the map as a military leader, and he's probably, I would be, if I were Abraham, he's probably wondering about retaliation and what he's created. God had already promised him the land there one day, that there would be a nation through him, that he would be famous, that he'd be a blessing to others. In the Abrahamic blessing is Jesus, that he would bless the whole world. 
And now God gives Abraham a vision. Now what's interesting is when you read this chapter, it sounds like Abraham's doing a lot of stuff, especially with these sacrifices, this weird cultic practice where they cut animals in two and kind of walk through them and everything. It's a, in fact, to make a covenant is literally called in the Hebrew to cut a covenant. And it has to do with how they did this with these animals. It's a little gross, but it was a cultural practice. Anyway, so that's going on. Some would say that actually didn't physically happen. Some would say this, the whole chapter is this vision. I'm not sure, and I don't think it matters much, but we're not sure. But anyway, it starts with a vision. It's possible the whole thing is a vision. And God says to him, don't fear. He's probably telling him not to fear because, again, in this post-battle situation, he's naturally wondering, are these guys going to come back and kill me? And then God says, you're going to have a physical heir. You're going to have a son. That's how you're going to become a nation. That's new news. God had already said you're going to be a nation. Now he's saying, no, it's not going to be through Eliezer, your servant, the guy who's running all of your stuff. You're going to have a son. And this physical heir will become a nation of descendants like the sands of the sea. So God is continuing to clarify every time he meets with Abraham a little bit more of what the promise entails. Then we have this really ancient cultic covenant practice where they cut up a lot of animals and it's kind of weird. And God confirms his promise to him. New predictions were given about what would happen to his progeny. There would be slavery for over 400 years. We know that to be in Egypt. There would then be an intervention by God. The people would come out richer than they went into it. And the future promised land would extend from the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates. So those parameters are given. So this is new information that Abraham is gleaning as God appears to him in this vision. It's possible, again, that the whole thing is a vision even the sacrificial stuff. In the middle of it, Genesis 15, 6 appears out of nowhere. In fact, we're gonna, we're gonna put that up there, that verse. This is, this is the key, Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is in the middle of this meta-narrative in the middle of this new information about what's going to happen to him, the son, the future of Israel, and so on, it appears out of nowhere. And I would argue it's kind of, you know, if you're just looking at the story, it's abrupt. It's, it's I've got it in my notes, it's kind of unnecessary. It's abrupt. It's almost out of context. It's a statement about Abraham's standing with God. What does it mean? Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it. That's an accounting term, sort of a legal term. Reckoned it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Second point, God responded to Abraham's faith with a judicial, destiny-altering, legal standing, which is righteous. Abraham has responded to God's voice for several years. 
So Abraham has known God in some way for many years because he made that long trek from Ur of the Chaldees, which would be modern-day Iraq, right by the Persian Gulf, probably followed the Tigris and Euphrates rivers up sort of to what was ancient Syria or Damascus, then dropped down into the Promised Land. So he's been following God. He's been directed by God for many years through just a couple of key moments where God sort of broke in and either gave him a vision or an audible voice. So for thousands of miles and a few key points he has followed God in the middle of this vision that he receives from God the one we're talking about today Moses the author clarifies Abraham's standing with God now some believe chapter 15 verse 6 which we just showed a few moments ago is stating what is happening at that time in the middle of this vision Abraham believed God and then God at that point imputed this righteous standing to him, which we'll explain in a moment. Some believe that Abraham has been demonstrating faith and God responds in the middle of this vision or in these moments with this statement, you are now considered righteous. Others believe Moses is simply stating what has been going along for some time. Abraham has been following God. He's been listening to God's voice, which in that case was audible. I would love some of those myself. Haven't really experienced that. Anyway, so, you know, Abraham was getting that. He's been following God. Somewhere along the way, he becomes a true believer in God. He knows God is the true God, and he's trusting him. And then Genesis 15, 6 states this as sort of context about God and Abraham. Along the way, as Abraham trusted God, God declared him righteous. Moses includes it. It's theologically rich, Whether it happened at that moment or before, I'm not sure. This rendition of Genesis seems to, this, uh, these uh, scholars seem to have indicated they think it happened now because it says, then he believed in the Lord. Not all uh, renditions of Genesis put it quite that way. So we're not sure, has this already happened? Is it happening right now? That's not the most important thing. Question is, what is it? What is this statement revealing? What did God do? All right, this issue theologically is called justification. Justification. And justification is this. It's an act of God in which a sinner, that would be me, I'm guessing it's you, I know some of you. It's an act of God in which a sinner or a lawbreaker, which is all of us, is given the legal standing of righteous or non-sinner or non-lawbreaker. In other words, God puts you in a position that you know not to be true about yourself. Now, the words, just so you know the theological sort of limits of this term, The word justify, which you find a lot in the book of Romans, other books like Galatians, justify, justification, righteous, right, righteousness, all of these words have a common root in Greek for sure and I believe in Hebrew as well. They all have a common root. They're all related. They're all kind of judicial terms. They're all legal terms. To justify is more the verbal side. Righteous is is the noun side. But they're all related. Justification, that theological term, is imputed, or is another word, it's imputed righteousness. It's like God puts this label on your account. In, In sort of the 
the, the, the handbook of heaven, as far as your legal, moral standing before God, God imputes righteousness to you. You are given righteousness that you've never earned. Now, I want you to think about this. It is not the innocent found not guilty. It's not what it is, because you're not innocent. I'm not innocent. It's not the innocent in God's court found not guilty. It's not the guilty found not guilty. It is the guilty declared righteous on the merits of another. All right, I'm going to repeat that. It's not the innocent found not guilty. Because you and I aren't innocent. Remember, you break one law, you might as well have broken them all, you're a lawbreaker. I'm not saying practically go ahead and break them all. I'm just saying in God's view, you're a lawbreaker. So it's not the innocent found not guilty. It's not the guilty found not guilty. It's not like God is overturning reality and saying you're not guilty even though you are. It is the guilty declared righteous. God imputes righteousness to your legal heavenly standing. It's the guilty declared righteous on the merits of another. In the New Testament, this is very clear. It is the righteousness of Christ that is put on your account. That's what Romans makes very clear. When you are justified, when you come to God in faith, he declares you righteous based on the merits or the works of Jesus. His moral standing is put on your account in heaven and your sins are put on him on the cross and there's this great exchange that takes place. And that's why you have, I believe, hundreds of times in the New Testament this little phrase that you are now in Christ. You're in Christ. Because you're justified, you're in Christ. You're connected to Christ's righteousness. That's where that comes from. The righteousness of Christ is imputed or given to you in the ledger of heaven. In Genesis 15, 6, we haven't had Jesus' sacrifice yet. Jesus is a long, 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 long distant promises, a promise. It is God's gift of his righteousness to sinful Abraham. And in that sense, Abraham sort of becomes the equivalent of a New Testament believer without understanding what Jesus was ever going to do. But it's a similar concept. God takes his righteousness, puts it on Abraham's account. So how is this possible? Well, salvation, and this is important because Christians get this confused. In fact, Dave, can you go back and find that Romans 3, 19, and 20 passage and throw it back up there? I just like to throw Dave a curveball once in a while. Hey, that was a good response. That was a good response. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. But this is a little confusing for a lot of Christians when you literally get in this conversation in Bible studies. Well, we know that we're saved in the New Testament by Jesus how were people saved in the Old Testament? How did they get salvation in the Old Testament? And the answer is, it wasn't ever any different. It's a little more confusing, but it wasn't ever any different. The answer is, people were always saved by God's grace. It was a gift, and we connected with God through faith. It was not like Jesus now and works then. In fact, this was a problem for the people in Paul's day. Because a lot of people, especially Jewish people, and I'm 132nd Jewish, so I'm going to throw myself in that camp for just a second. My people, in Jesus' day, felt that because we were the people of God, even my 132nd, 
felt that we were the people of God, we were given his favor, and so we were sort of in automatically, and we just tried to be good, and, and the Pharisees were all about that. They took God's commands, and they took them seriously, and they kind of built a fence around the law. They added laws to make sure they didn't break the ones God actually talked about. But Paul says, wait, that, that's wrong. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. In other words, the law is there to create accountability for morality. Because by the works of the law, by keeping the law, by being good, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. You're not going to get this declaration from God on your legal account in heaven, righteous, by trying to be a good dude or do that or whatever. It's not going to happen. Nobody gets that. The law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's not a path to heaven. And every religion except Christianity is based on it. It is not a path to heaven. We need an infusion of righteousness that we don't possess from God. People were never saved by keeping the law. Always saved by grace through faith. But here is a difference. Dave, you can flip back to the other one there. Thank you, sir. But here is a difference. Old Testament believers did have less knowledge and understanding. And I think that's one reason this is confusing for us because they didn't know who Jesus was necessarily. Certainly Abraham doesn't. And I know there are probably theologians that think these guys had all kinds of insight they didn't. But I am a firm believer in progressive revelation. And what progressive revelation means is that people later in salvation history knew more than people earlier in salvation history. Let me illustrate. The apostle Paul understood more than the apostles did that walked with Jesus. You say, how can that be true? Because the apostle Paul developed all the theology around what Jesus did. And the 12 who walked with him, for the most part, didn't. Paul understood more. He gave us more. The 12 apostles themselves who walked with Jesus understood more after the resurrection than they did before the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they're just thinking, oh my goodness, we just lost Jesus. He's dead. The movement is over. But Jesus died to pay for the sins of humanity. They didn't get it. They had their blinders on. They just wanted this political kingdom where a miracle worker was the king and he could do anything he wanted and they could defeat Rome. After the resurrection, they understood why Jesus died. They didn't get it before that. So even the apostles themselves, they grew in their understanding pre-resurrection to post-resurrection. The apostles knew more about Jesus than the prophets did. The prophets knew more than Moses did. And Moses was brilliant. Moses knew more than Abraham because God kept revealing himself in greater ways. It's called progressive revelation. God continued to reveal himself. So people knew more as God revealed himself more and it was recorded. So what did Abram know? Well, not what you and I know. I mean, you might want the audible voice from God, but we know a whole lot more than Abraham did about God. I'm not saying experientially. He did get some audible voices and visions. I mean, I'd love to have that, but we know a whole lot more than Abraham did. You've got the rest of the book. He's got like page 10. And he hasn't been included until about page 7. He's got very little. But what he did have was he believed in the true God. 
and he placed his faith in that God as God revealed himself to him. And he probably had faith, as Old Testament saints did, in forgiveness for sins through some part of the sacrificial system. Blood sacrifice for sin, which the ancient Israelite religion was built on. So somewhere along Abram's journey, he trusted God. And God declared him righteous, justified. All right. Righteous apps. Number one, a spiritual journey and a point of justification are not the same thing. Here's my point. If you're here, you're on a spiritual journey for sure. Because I don't really think with stampede going on and everything, you'd come to church if you didn't want to be here. It means you're on a spiritual journey of sorts. But curiosity about God isn't enough. Identifying the true God isn't enough. I mean, the Bible says in the book of James, later on James says this, he says basically, just believing in God objectively doesn't get you anywhere. He said the devil believes in God and the devil trembles. In other words, Satan has the right God identified. He used to share heaven with him. So it's not just identifying the right religion or the right God. Searching is not enough. Curiosity is not enough. Everyone needs this moment in their journey where God says, you, even though you aren't, are going to be declared righteous, justified. The moral standing of Jesus on your account, your sins on him on the cross. Everyone needs justification, this declaration from the court of heaven that says righteous. And what's interesting, we call it today, we call it a point of faith which we'll talk about in a few more minutes, a point of faith where we really connect with God through faith and receive his gift of salvation. Second, nobody has ever earned salvation. It's always been a gift of grace to the undeserving. The Bible says if we could earn salvation, we wouldn't need the cross. If we can earn salvation, it's based on us. It's sort of an arrogant position. We get into heaven, God, you owe me because I was like perfect. Nobody gets that. We aren't. We need a savior, which means None of us have any hope except for God's gift of salvation, and that's the point. If works can't make you free, then we need the gift of God's righteousness on our account. That's what justification is. It's a gift to the undeserving. Matt Chandler writes about a time he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman named Kim to a concert. It was a Christian concert. He hoped that Kim would come to faith in Christ that evening. He said what happened was a train wreck. In retrospect, he was grateful for the experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim Jesus. Chandler writes, the preacher took the stage at this concert and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics. He's talking to young people, so he's talking about STDs. He's talking about not having sex. There was a lot of, you don't want to catch this, do you? And his big illustration was to take out a single red rose. Now, he's talking to young people. It's a Christian concert. He's trying to make sure they behave themselves. He takes out a rose. He smelled the rose dramatically because he's a preacher. Yeah, whatever. He caressed its petals. He talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. Then he threw the rose out into the crowd. He encouraged everyone to pass the rose around. And as he neared the end of his message... He asked for the rose back. By now, I mean, it had been handled by hundreds of people. He's probably long-winded like me, probably thousands of people. 
It was broken and drooping and wilted and the petals were falling up and he now held up this now ugly rose for all to see and his big finish was this. Now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone were merciless and his essential message which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to the world was this, don't be a dirty rose. Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks until one day her mother called Matt to inform him that Kim had been in an accident. She's in the hospital. He goes to visit her. And in the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, Kim said, do you think I'm a dirty rose? She forgotten. He says, my heart sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus wants the rose. It doesn't matter what's happened to it or how much it's been passed around and abused and dirtied. Jesus wants the rose. That's the gospel. That's justification. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We're all lawbreakers. Some more than others, but we're all in the same plight before God. And it doesn't matter what life has done to you or what your choices have been. Jesus wants you back. There's something intrinsically valuable in you. It's called the image of God and it is worth dying for. Jesus wants the rose. His desire is to save, to redeem, to restore the rose. We're all dirty roses. Starting here. But there's also something intrinsically valuable in each one of us. We are God's best work, the highest part of creation made in his image. We're broken by sin and we need a savior. And justification comes as a gift of God. You can't earn it. It's a gift through faith. And because it's grace, it's a gift. It's simple. Since you can't earn it, God made it simple. We need to believe. We believe. What do we believe? Well, it's very simple. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to receive this moment on your journey when God says righteous to you. You will forever now be considered righteous in my sight. You'll be in Christ. To get that, we believe three things. All of them are talked about in the New Testament as part of the gospel. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Can't be a Christian without that one. Why would you want to be? Christian, Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we understand that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, that Jesus hung on the cross. He died on a a cross in about 30 A.D., as a payment for the sins of humanity. When he hung on that cross, the Bible says there was darkness for three hours, which secular historians actually talk about for a couple of centuries. They thought it must be an eclipse. From noon till three, the Gospels say, it was dark. And during that time, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned his back on the Son during that moment as Jesus bore the weight of the sins of the world for those three hours. And he recognized for the first time in the Trinity being disfellowshipped from the Father. 
And a part of being a Christian is trusting that what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for your sins so that by trusting in that, God will take your sins, look at them as dealt with on the cross, and take the righteousness of Christ and put it on your legal account in heaven, and you are now viewed as in Christ, in his righteousness. You have a new legal moral standing. You're still imperfect. I am too. We're still dirty roses in some ways. We still make mistakes, but our legal standing is in Christ. Believe that he's the son of God. Trust in his atonement and commit to his lordship. Being a Christian means I got a new pilot and he doesn't need a co-pilot. He's in charge. He's Lord. Not going to be perfect, not always going to do the right thing, but I'm giving over the leadership of my life to Jesus. Believe he's the son of God, trust in his atonement, commit to his lordship. And when you do that, the God of heaven says, righteous to you. You know, if you've never made that commitment, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm going to put a prayer of faith up there. It's up there right now. And I'm just going to pray through that. And if you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus, as I read these words, I would encourage you to make it the prayer of faith in your heart to connect with the God who created you. Dear Jesus, I believe I know that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that you are the son of God. I trust in your sacrifice on the cross as you paid the penalty for my sin. And I commit to your lordship in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer, there's nothing magical about those words except that they convey the gospel and what it takes to believe in and trust in the gospel. I would encourage you if you prayed that prayer for the first time, just let one of us know, an elder, a staff member, let somebody know. We'd love to help you continue in your faith journey. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.